Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right. Hey, everybody. I am coming to you in the midst of our Snowmageddon, snowpocalypse experience here in Colorado. We've got snow coming down now. Not really that bad at all as I'm sitting here talking, but we'll see how things are 24 hours from now. Um, I wanted to give a little shout out to those of you who are supporting this show through Patreon. It is you guys who are keeping the lights on and the show going. And I mean that very literally. So I want to thank you, every one of you who are supporting this channel and supporting my efforts here. I really, really appreciate it. Um, all right. Now, that all being said, we had a, a pretty personal podcast this week I'm going to plug for you guys. Uh, Mel and I sat here and talked about mental health, some of the challenges and barriers we've been experiencing with getting help with that. And I'm sure that it's not just we didn't we weren't um, trying to just have a rant session. We were speaking to, you know, broader issues of that and also though sharing some things from my studies and learning and thinking on the topic and some suggestions I had as to how we might all help each other out. Because at the end of the day, if we can't do that, then all the social services and government functions and, you know, regulated activities and anything else out there really, you know, it, it, what's, what's that going to do if we can't just help each other? You know, I think that's a much more fundamental and and basic way of looking at things. So kind of putting that out there and some stuff there on that. So I hope you'll check out that podcast. And now let's get on with your questions for this week. We got some pretty interesting ones. Nick, some time ago you had Ross and Carrie on your show. I just heard Carrie on serious inquiries only. In the course of a conversation with the host, she proposed a party game. One by one, players would be given quotes which they would need to attribute to either Sigmund Freud or L. Ron Hubbard. Do you think it would be a difficult game to play? Perhaps more importantly, would it be a fun game to play? Thanks for the question, Nick. And actually, this spurred me to go look up some Sigmund Freud quotes. I mean, I have, you know, tons of L. Ron Hubbard quotes right off the top of my head, but I did look some up for this that also. And it was pretty interesting seeing some of the things that Sigmund Freud commented on or had to say. Um, I was a little surprised. I thought he was a little bit of a, um, well, I just haven't really studied him very closely is really the, probably the safest thing I can say about that. Um, but there was some pretty interesting stuff I found. And I thought that your idea of this or Carrie's idea of this as a podcast or as a party game, rather, was a great idea. Um, and let me demonstrate. I came up with a couple examples here that I thought I might throw at you guys and see what you had to say. And what I'll do is I will read the line and then uh, I will tell you uh, whether it was Sigmund Freud or whether it was L. Ron Hubbard who said it. Okay, but, but I'll give you a little chance to, after each one, to sort of uh, think about it for a second and come up with an answer for yourself. Okay, so here's the first one. Never regret yesterday. Life is in you today, and you make your tomorrow. All right, so who was that? Was that Sigmund Freud, or was that L. Ron Hubbard? Okay, that was L. Ron Hubbard. All right, next one. I have found little that is good, quote-unquote, about human beings on the whole. 
in my experience, most of them are trash, no matter whether they publicly subscribe to this or that ethical doctrine or to none at all. That is something you cannot say aloud or perhaps even think. Okay, who said that? Sigmund Freud or L. Ron Hubbard? That was quite a statement. And that was from Sigmund Freud. Okay, Sigmund Freud said that one. All right, here we go with another one. Boldness is, uh, sorry, boldness in itself is genius. Now, is that Hubbard or is that Freud? Boldness in itself is genius. That's Hubbard. A culture is only as great as its dreams, and its dreams are dreamed by artists. Hubbard or Freud? Who said that? That one was L. Ron Hubbard. All right. I have a couple more here. Most people do not really want freedom because freedom involves responsibility, and most people are frightened of responsibility. L. Ron Hubbard? Sigmund Freud. Who said that? Which one? That, my friends, was Sigmund Freud. All right, next one. The goal of all life is death. The goal of all life is death. Was that Sigmund Freud or was that L. Ron Hubbard? That was Sigmund Freud. And two more here. The wrong thing to do about any given circumstance or situation is to do nothing. Was that Sigmund Freud saying that or was that L. Ron Hubbard saying that? The wrong thing to do about any given circumstance or situation is to do nothing. That is L. Ron Hubbard. And finally, being entirely honest with oneself is a good exercise. <laughs> now, was that L. Ron Hubbard or was that Sigmund Freud? Two people who classically were not honest with themselves. <laughs> I find that so funny. Uh, that quote comes from Sigmund Freud. All right. So that is an example of a, of a little party game there uh, or what that would look like. And uh, I thought that was a little fun. It was certainly fun for me to look those up. So there you go. M. Kennedy. I have recently found out about the Writers of the Future, a contest for science fiction and fantasy writers. There is no entry fee and writers get to keep the rights to their work. I thought this was too good to be true, so I poked around and realized winning works are published through Galaxy Press. And to contact them, you email them at Author Services, which is a part of the Church of Spiritual Technology, right? Is this just a shell competition with the aim of getting details of people in order to harass them into doing courses in the usual Scientology way? All right, thank you for this question. And no, this is not just another way to get addresses of people because um, there's way too much work and effort and money put into this exercise for it to be just a data collection for some writers and some illustrators, because there is a Writers of the Future and there is an Illustrators of the Future contest. And both of these have been sponsored by, paid by the um, Author Services, Inc. And Author Services is L. Ron Hubbard's literary agent. And that's the organization that serves the function of his literary agent. They have the rights of publication and distribution, sales of all of L. Ron Hubbard's um, fiction works, okay, Battlefield Earth, Mission Earth, all of his pulp fiction, all of that falls under author services. And um, 
Author Services, ASI, is manned exclusively by Sea Org members. So it is, by that very fact, a part of the Church of Scientology, even though it's not officially incorporated. It is a for-profit activity that is not incorporated in any way under the, the Church of Scientology or its umbrella or any of its uh, front organizations or groups, right? It's a totally separate thing. Yet it's manned only by Scientologists, Sea Org members, the most dedicated Scientologists, in fact, what you could call the fanatical ones. So that's kind of interesting. What's that about? Well, turns out Author Services is a fund is a for-profit activity that is legitimately working to try to popularize L. Ron Hubbard as a fiction author. That's their that's their mission statement and purpose, and that's their that's what they're trying to do. But what it, that the money that comes in from that isn't going to the head of Bridge or, or sorry to uh, the head of Author Services. It's not going to those Sea Org members. They're making fifty bucks a week, right? It's going to uh, Scientology, but it, where it's specifically going, or at least I believe a lot of the money is going, is to the Church of Spiritual Technology. So it's kind of a funnel for money to go and and fund the Church of Spiritual Technology, or CST, and that's the organization that is in charge of the um, preservation of the tech project, and that's storing all of L. Ron Hubbard's written and spoken words for, you know, the generations to come, even if a nuclear war happens, all of that stuff will be preserved. Okay, so you were asking about the contest. Now, um, this Writers and Illustrators of the Future contests are, are really great P internal industry PR activities for author services, right? They Again, they're a literary agent. They're trying to make contacts in the industry to sell and publish L. Ron Hubbard's works, popularize his works, make his name a popular name in the science fiction and fantasy world um, because the demographic of Scientology is very much that group of people, at least it used to be. I don't think it really is anymore, but it used to be. Um, you know, science fiction fans, fantasy fans, bookish people, engineers, these were the original Dianeticists. You know, they were reading, they were coming into it for through astounding stories and, and pulp fiction and stuff like that. So anyway, so this has a long sort of history to it connected with Scientology. And Ultimately, it is desired that all of this good press and good publicity for L. Ron Hubbard and his works will result in conversions to Scientology. People come in, and, the, and we used to have briefings and talks about this. So this is very open in the world of Scientology. Everybody knows this is the case, that on a broad basis, what Author Services is trying to do is popularize L. Ron Hubbard so people get interested in him, read his fiction works, and go, well, what else did he write? And then look into Dianetics and Scientology, and then you have potential avenues for people to get recruited into Scientology. So it's really kind of a byproduct, not a direct effect of the work of author services that we're going to have more Scientologists, but that is a stated goal, okay? So that's part of the picture. 
But uh, but much more, I believe, um, the the picture that you're looking at there represents uh, a money stream uh, for author services to to make this money and then flow it to uh, Church of Spiritual Technology so they can do their preservation of the tech or whatever else they're up to. Because the preservation of the tech project, we know about. But that doesn't mean we know about everything they're doing. (laughs) This is a confidential organization that very few people, even in Scientology, know a whole lot about. Only a handful of people work there. I'm talking about CST now. Author Services is also a very small group, right? It's really only a handful of Sea Org members running that show. But CST, you know, Author Services is a for-profit entity that is very public-facing. CST is not. You go to a CST property up in uh, Big Bear or Arrowhead or wherever they're located up in California, they will turn you away. There are fences and guards and guns, and they're not at all interested in anybody coming anywhere near their properties. And they have many of them. There's, we know, one out in New Mexico. They tried to do one in Wyoming. I think there's a couple in California. So, um, you know, so these properties are well hidden away and are not public access. And the CST's general activities are completely not transparent and uh, not well known. Who is even on their board of directors is not even well known. So very, very hush-hush operation, which means all kinds of things could be going on there with the amount of money that's flowing through that and the potential for money laundering, right? Let's never forget that Scientology is a criminal enterprise at its heart. It is a money-making scam. So, you know, so I think CST is simply one of the church's many, you know, organs of, of financial fraud and deceit, right, that has a stated public purpose and which has to work on that purpose. I mean, they do create the preservation of the tech project. It's real. They are doing it. But who's to say that that's the only thing they're doing, right? So anyway, that's um, that's kind of a little bit of what I could say about that. I hope that answers your question and gives you a lot more information about CST and uh, author services and, and what that's all about. TJ Feeney, due to current COVID restrictions here in Ireland, I'm left wandering around outside the maternity hospital while my wife is inside getting her scans. While walking around, I see a building known as the Scientology National Affairs Office. It's on Marion Square. I've never heard of this before. Is it the same as the Office of Special Affairs or something different? Only a few years ago, Scientology moved to an ideal org outside of the city in a huge, always empty, site. Surely this small office could be housed there too. Hey TJ, thank you for this question and good observation. The Church of Scientology's National Affairs Office, and they have one there um, in Ireland, they have one in Belgium, and they have one in Washington, D.C., are meant to cater specifically to government contacts and uh, VIP contacts, business contacts, people in the secular world who might not want to or shouldn't be connected or, uh, you know, going into a Church of Scientology but they could go into this more secular uh, office of Scientology, or at least secular appearing. I mean, it's not like they deny that they're Scientologists, but 
Their um, goals are much more public facing, you know, influencing policy, legislation, government officials, safe pointing, which is the activity of making allies in this in, uh, of VIP um, individuals in and out of the government sector, business sector, private sector, etc. Um, if Scientology has any kind of interests in an area in terms of um, PR area control, it's that office that's going to be running that show. And that does a, that serves a number of functions. It keeps it off the lines of the church. So the church staff, you know, why is it not in that building? Well, it's so that the guys who are doing all the services and delivering everything, they don't have to think about or worry about any of that stuff, right? They're, they're really apples and oranges. What the National Affairs Office is doing is nothing to do with the delivery of Dianetics and Scientology services. The orgs are only supposed to exist to deliver the stuff, right? They're not there to um, do a whole lot of community activity stuff. I mean, it's part of the function, but the primary function is service delivery. The primary function in the National Affairs Office is PR area control, safe pointing, and of course, the dark side of OSA, the Office of Special Affairs, and yes, you were right, it is fully the Office of Special Affairs who are running these offices. There's are Sea Org members who are in there. And um, if they have, you know, black ops or dirty ops or they need to meet with people of an unsavory nature, way more plausible deniability between the church and this office if these people aren't going to the church, right? They can be, but they can go to these offices. Um, not that they have, you know, sleazy PIs walking in and out of these places either. They're trying to keep up a public face, but you get my point. There's a, there's a layer of deniability and less transparency and all of that. So um, basically, that's what these national affairs offices are about. They're supposed to basically be dealing with things at a country or national level, right? They're not just for the city or area that they're in. So uh, that's what I can say about that with any real certainty. I can certainly speculate, of course, that there are, you know, all kinds of shady activities going on in them or, you know, or not. I mean, the other thing about these offices is that they're really empty a lot of the time. I mean, the Scientology is toxic and is very unpopular. And so it takes some real dedicated work on the part of these people to make the inroads that they need to into the governments, uh, especially over the last 10 years or so, since it's been so, um, you know, it's been a bad thing to publicly to be connected with or associated with Scientology and a, a government function or at a government level. Um, yet it happens and we find out that Scientology has allied all kinds of people and at state, local, county, and even federal levels. Okay, that's a thing. And if um, and if you think it's not, well, it is. Okay, so um, Scientology can gain a lot of influence and can quell, you know, can get a lot of heads ups about things before anybody else knows. Can get, you know, like warnings, um, and can also, um, you know, be influencing people or situations that you'll never know anything about because you won't know Scientology was ever connected with it in any way. That's the kind of stuff that would run through these offices, right? And they are kind of extension units of the Office of Special Affairs. So there you go. Tim Mitchell, 
I've seen Scientology documentaries in the UK that point to individuals suffering from complete financial neglect to maintain courses in an attempt to reach clear. One man, an astrophysicist, gave his car and flat to the organization because he couldn't afford either. He then had to contend with org members living in his house and driving his car. How is this possible? How do potential millionaires give millions to attain clear where that money could have set them up for life as potential Forbes 100 contestants? What is in this set of programs that creates such irresponsibility? Well, you know, uh, Tim, it's a funny thing because the question really brings to mind for me simply the fact that um, values, ideas of what's important, priorities are so individual from one person to the next. And we really seem to lack a tolerance or understanding of how this really works, like kind of at a mechanical level almost. You know, I mean, yeah, we can generally say, hey, people are going to have different ideas, be tolerant, you know. But if you really want to understand how it is that somebody, you know, in answer to your question, how could somebody so violate what you see as normal, regular behavior and go running off in what looks like the other direction as the, and, and you can't do anything but conclude that they must be a madman because who would give up their house, give up their car, you know, let people sleep there, uh, all to pursue, you know, some state of existence called the state of clear. Why, 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 why would somebody do that? That sounds absolutely insane. What I'm trying, what I, where I'm going with this is that to that person, they're not looking at the world the way you are at all. Their world is totally different from yours. And by that, I mean, they live in the same objective world you live in. Same cars, same roads, same houses, eat the same kind of food, you know, use the same kind of showers, etc. I mean, all those things are the same. But the way they're looking at the world, the way they actually perceive it and think about it is so different from how you do that you might well have, a, if you were to mind meld with them for a minute, you might think you are mind melding with an alien. And this is not to say that, that Scientologists are aliens or something. I'm not, I'm not implying or saying anything specific about that. I'm trying to point out how different we are from one another in here and how different our perceptions of the world are. And I'm harping on this only because you're so frustrated in your question with how could this be? How could this person be so irresponsible? Well, here's the thing, okay? I'm, and, I'm, and I'm totally gonna answer your question right now in terms of what this person's looking at or thinking. But I really wanna get across to you that from their point of view, from the point of view of the Scientologist, what they're doing and the way they're acting and behaving and the way they're thinking is 100% certainty that what they're doing is the right thing, is the good thing, is the moral thing, is what they absolutely need to be doing in order to fulfill their life goals and get where they want to go and do what they want to do. And that's how they're looking at it, right? They're not crazy. They're not nuts. They're not insane. It's not like that. And from their point of view, they're not even irresponsible. I mean, this is really, the, the conflicting values here are, are amazing to look at if you look at the mechanics of it, which is why I pointed out. 
Now, to get to the specifics of why this is, what the person has, how this works is, this person you're referring to is bought into an idea, a goal, a carrot dangling on a, on a stick in front of them that they think they can achieve, which is so amazing to them, so unbelievably awesome that they're willing to sacrifice material needs and wants in order to achieve it because they believe that once they've achieved it, the entire world will be their oyster and they'll be able to have anything they want, be anything they want to be, and do anything they want to do. That's, that's how they think about it, too. Be, do, have. That's a, that's a Hubbardism. So, um, so this state of clear that they have been sold, what is it? Well, the state of clear, basically, is a, is a, a state of mind, a mental health condition, I guess you could say, or a state where you have excoriated or removed from your psyche, from your mind, from your thinking, um, all of the pain and trauma and stress and anxiety and all the crazy-making things and all the stuff that's in your past that is clinging to you and keeping you down and holding you back, all the uncertainties, the fears, the doubts, the reservations, the self-recriminations, the, the, you know, all those times that you tell yourself you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're not able to make it happen, nobody likes you, everybody hates you, you know, you might, you know, you might as well go eat mud, you know, whatever uh, these things are that we say to ourselves. The source of that, according to Scientology, is one thing, and it's a part of your psyche called the reactive mind. And it sounds very plausible to somebody who has little to no mental health experience or training or understanding. It sounds plausible. Really? There's a part of my mind called the reactive mind that reacts on me? What, really? Well, sure. Have you ever said something you didn't really want to say? Have you ever had thoughts that you wondered where the hell they came from? You ever had voices in your head telling you to do things that are a little disturbing? Or not just have voices in your head at all? Right? Have you ever wondered why you can't succeed the way you want to? Have you ever wondered why it is you get these dark clouds, why you wake up in a bad mood sometimes, even though everything's absolutely fine? It's this thing called the reactive mind. And we not only know it exists, but we have the exact anatomy of it figured out. We've been trying, and this is the Scientologist talking, right? I am, I, this is the Scientologist, okay? This isn't me. Okay, so the Scientologists will tell you, we've been trying to give this to psychology for decades. They don't want to have anything to do with it. You know what we found out? They're more interested in hurting you than helping you because they're only in it for the money. We're here to help. We're not making, you know, boatloads of money compared to those guys. They're raking in billions and billions every year. We're barely keeping the doors open. And remember, from the point of view of the Scientology staff member, what he's saying is true. <laughs> they are barely keeping their doors open, right? So he's sitting there doing his sales pitch and telling this guy that this state of clear can be achieved and all those fears, all those doubts, all those horrible things about yourself that you really don't like and wish weren't there. Well, guess what? It's actually not you. And we have the power to take it away. And think of how empowered 
how amazing, how awesome you and your life will be if all of that is gone. And I mean gone forever, not just relieved a little bit. It's not just having a good day. It's fucking gone. And it's never coming back. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You know, it sounds too good to be true because it is too good to be true. But if you're in a vulnerable place and you have a problem and you don't know what to do about it and somebody can convince you that they have the answer, you will give anything to solve that problem. If it's a big enough problem for you, right? And when people hit these life crossroads where they're appealing to Scientology for help or they're wandering into a Scientology organization or a friend of theirs who's a Scientologist brings them in, which is how most Scientologists are made, by the way, is through the friends and family line, right? But if you're in that place, that place of vulnerability, that place of, uh, of need, of emotional, you know, you need some emotional rescue here. Uh, maybe your life really is in a turmoil. Maybe things really are that messed up and you need a road out of this. And here comes the magic carpet that's going to ride you right out of here. And all you got to do is do what we say, follow our directions, and we'll get you there. Right? And that's how it starts. That's how it starts. <laughs> because then you start going. You start, you go, okay, I want this road. I'm going to walk this road. I'm going to do this. And everybody around you suddenly, all these people you've newly met in this group are like, yeah, so your social circle that you've newly found, and here's all these people who care about you, are talking to you about important things that matter to you, and they actually look like they care. And maybe no one else around you does. Right? I want to I I flip the, the, the script a little bit here because... You know, one of the reasons people get involved in destructive cults is because, or narcissistic relationships, by the way, is because this person or this group are people who are actually willing to listen to them. And they go to their friends, they go to their family, they don't want to hear it, they got their own problems, they're not interested, right? Or maybe they'll, they'll lend an ear, but they don't really have any ideas, they don't really know what to do. Right? So you go down to the pub and you have a few, but then you still got the same problems, right? And, and they've listened, but so what? Here's a group of people who are saying, not only do I care and I'm, and I'm listening to you and I get it, man, but I got the solution. I got a way out. I can tell you how to get out of this situation. So anyway, I'm probably over, you know, overdoing this horribly, but I just want to get across like the level of intensity of of what these people encounter when they walk into a Scientology church and are really getting the hard sell, right? If you really go in there and you're looking like you need help and you're reaching, they'll take you and they'll pull you right in and, and to these kind of results. Because once you start walking that walk and you're committed, then it has to work. Now the sunk cost fallacy starts going into play and a number of other things. And um, and you just start walking that walk. And the walk is not difficult to start with. It's not hard at the beginning. You go into auditing. It's all very simple. It's a, you answer questions. You get some reliefs. You know, people are listening to you. And you're just getting more and more into this thing. And it's really not that much money at the start. And, and these people are so amazing and wonderful. And you're making new friends. And you're really feeling understood. 
And then gradually it starts getting more expensive. The hard sell starts getting a bit more intense. You start seeing, you know, that things aren't really necessarily the way they should be, but you keep going anyway. And you know the story, right? So that's how your friend or this person uh, you mentioned here, um, yeah, the astrophysicist, right? That's how that's how that happens. Um, what is said to the person exactly will change from one person to another. Um, what the person's emotional needs are might change from one person to another. You know, the circumstances that bring them to Scientology are going to be different, but the handling they're going to receive and the things they're going to be told in a general sense and the way the emotions are manipulated in a, in a broad way are very much same, same, same from one person to the next. And that's what I've tried to describe here. And I really hope I got it across and I hope I didn't um, go too pedantic or anything there or, or you know, I hope, I hope I got my point across. So anyway, thanks for uh, asking. Stella. I have a moral slash ethical dilemma. I hope you can help me think it through. As a longtime Scientology watcher and critic, I feel it's my duty to speak out against the church and draw attention to its misdeeds. But I'm wavering in the extent to which I abstain from supporting public Scientologists' work. It's easy to boycott the megastar who's personally profited from Sea Org slave labor or the has-been sitcom actress who shrilly accuses critics of raping babies. But I find myself making excuses for the second-generation musician who keeps his membership fairly quiet, the character actor in the fun Marvel film, or the older star from a 70s sitcom and cult classic films. Am I complicit in making Scientology look good by buying an album or watching a movie with a famous Scientologist in it? Is it enough to make up for that consumption by supporting ex-Scientologists and sharing what I know with others? Am I overthinking this? Stella, thank you very much for asking this question, and it's far from the first time I've heard it, and you are not necessarily overthinking this. You're giving something some real deep moral thought, and that, that's a good thing, okay? Um, now, in terms of the specifics of this, I have, of course, said many times that I can't stand Tom Cruise. I will not watch the man. He is a monster, and that is really the truth of it, and um, I just can't suspend my own disbelief anymore watching him. I just see the shark eyes, the deadness there, and I know there's nothing behind them. And that's the end of the story for me with Tom Cruise. I don't feel that way about John Travolta, um, Michael Pena, you know. Um, I, you know, Jenna Elfman disturbs me just because I know how hysterical she can get. But uh, but I also know she's a victim of a cult mentality and she was raised with it, you know. So we're, it got involved very, very young. So um, you know, so I, I, I grant a lot of latitude there, too, because I understand the process and how it all works. So I try not to hold a grudge, generally speaking, against all Scientologists just because they happen to have the profession of entertainers. You know, it doesn't mean I, that they hold a special, dark, horrible place in my heart, right? It's, it's, it's you know, they're, they're, they're just another job. And um, and quite honestly, you know, I have never watched a Michael Pena in a film for example, and, you know, felt distracted or thrown out of the movie or whatever because I was watching a Scientologist. I see Jim Meskimen on sitcoms. I mean, he appeared on Parks and Rec a few nights ago when we were watching that. And it's just funny to me. Oh, yeah, there's an OT8 Scientologist, right? You know, D-list D actor, right? There he is. 
so, it, you know, so it doesn't have to distract or annoy or, or be a source of, of, of ethical dilemma, really, because it's we're talking about entertainment. And when, um, you know, when you are supporting an artist, let's make let's let's get kind of specific about this, too. Right. In terms of arguments for a really solid and strong argument is the fact that you're not supporting them as Scientologists. You know, when you go see a movie, you're supporting a movie, a story that you're going to see with make-believe characters in it. It's not any real different than a novel. The characters are no more real in a movie than they are in a book. In fact, they're written down and then they are simply acted out on screen by people whose job it is to do that. So you're not supporting Scientology when you are going to watch a story played out visually for you. Um, because a Scientologist is there, um, that could or couldn't influence your view of the thing, right? Record, movie, whatever. Um, but the amount of profit that's going to end up in the Church of Scientology's coffers because of that movie, minuscule, negligible, almost nothing, not really worth worrying about, at least as far as I'm concerned, right? Because your movie ticket, you know, what are you investing? You're investing 12, 15 bucks in a movie ticket, you know, 20 bucks for a CD or something. I mean, how much of that is the artist going to see? A very, very, very tiny percentage of that. And of that percentage, how much of that is going to go right into the artist's pocket? Very small amount of that. And then how much of that is going to go to Scientology? Tiny. So we're talking about, you know, uh, percentages of percentages in terms of monetary gain. It's so negligible. It's really not worth worrying about. So, you know, in, in a very pragmatic, practical sense, there's really no real concern there. Um, now, if you were to, of course, tweet out, I can't wait to see this new Tom Cruise movie. He's my favorite Scientologist. <laughs> and I don't mean ironically. I mean, you really are supporting Scientology, right? Or you're trying to forward Scientology's message. Okay, there's where I might, I'm going to have a problem with what you're doing, right? And I might, I might respond in, you know, uh, proportionately on Twitter. Um, again, you know, it's that you'd have to go that kind of far out of your way to even put Scientology into the picture, you know. Uh, so that's my take on it. It's a rather sort of whatever-ish kind of attitude about it at this point. I think I used to have stronger views on this. I think I've kind of moved on from some of that in some ways. However, uh, every time this question comes up, I always do go way out of my way, and I will do so again today, to say Tom Cruise is a dick and he's a monster, and the man should not be supported in any way. And that is a very strong opinion I continue to hold uh, for all the reasons laid out in the Going Clear documentary and book, if you are honestly curious about that. Okay, so thanks for asking. All right, let's do some flash answers. Our test for Echo. Is there a reason that an intensive is 12 and a half hours? Why not 10 or 20 hours? Why the half hour and not a round number? 
Okay, great question. And I'm gonna try to answer this really quickly. Um, in Dianetics, when it was originally being delivered, we're talking all the way back in 1950 when professional intensives were being put together, they were meant to be delivered at 50 hours in a week. It was 10 hours a day, baby. You come in on Monday, get tested, you get into session, and it is intensive, all-day work. Five days, and then you get a test on Friday to see the results, and then you you know go on to take the weekend off and come back on Monday and start your next intensive. Okay, then as organizations were founded and started to deliver to the public, it was found that there were people who could come in all day and do that, but... 50 hours was a bit much. <laughs> so they reduced it down to a 25-hour intensive, five hours a day, five days a week. Uh, yeah, or you split that up, you know, between nights and weekends. And you do two and a half hours a night, Monday through Friday, which is 12 and a half hours. And that's where the 12 and a half hours came from. So that then ended up becoming the sort of reduced standard size of a block of Scientology auditing. And so the name intensive went to the 12 and a half hour block, but it had originally, it had started at 50, reduced to 25. And that's the picture of that. So there you go. Steve Wood, are there any Scientologists in the U.S. Armed Forces? And if not, why? I'm very much looking forward to your answer on this question. Uh, I can't say for 100% sure right now that there are Scientologists in the armed forces, but when I was in Scientology, I met three people who were active duty personnel who were also interested in doing, practicing Dianetics and Scientology. So that's what I can tell you about that. Travis, what type of clothing does Xenu wear according to Scientologists? Travis, this is a good question, and I actually have an answer straight from L. Ron Hubbard for you on this one. L. Ron Hubbard wrote a screenplay called Revolt in the Stars. I think it was 1977 or 78, and they tried to get this movie produced, and this was a science fiction epic uh, on the order of Star Wars. Hubbard was inspired by the success of Star Wars to put the OT3 narrative into a movie form. And uh, he thought it would uh, re-stimulate everybody and blow up everybody's heads and get them flooding into Scientology organizations. I swear to God, he really did think that. So here is, right from the screenplay, Revolt in the Stars, the description of Xenu. Xenu, bitter-faced, sardonic, leaning heavily on a cane that was more like a club, limped forward to the front edge of the draped railing. He glared down at the stalled group on the concourse below and did not like what he saw. The dark somberness of his civilian suit, the darkness of his hair and face, seemed to spread outward. So what does Zenu wear? He wears a business suit. He looks like a CEO. That's Zenu. <laughs> all right and that is the end of our show for this week thanks for coming around guys and listening to what i had to say i hope my answers were informative and useful in some fashion and maybe a little entertaining i really really appreciate your questions please do continue to send them in to ask chris shelton at gmail.com and if you're enjoying this show and my channel please do consider supporting me through patreon or I want off through PayPal. There are links below in the description section of every one of my videos 
to those two things. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.